Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. How many times do we say to our children, I'm not going to tell you again to stop that. Next time you do that, you're going to be punished. The idea, of course, is that our children are told how they're to behave. That's our job to train them up. But when they choose sometimes not to obey it, there must be some consequences. We're patient with them. We give them every opportunity to do the right thing. But then there comes a decision time to show them how they are to live. Well, God deals with us much the same way. He tells us how to have a relationship with him. He shows us how to have a relationship through Jesus Christ in the way of salvation. He's patient and loving and kind and giving us every opportunity to repent. When we decide to repent and turn to him, we become priests in his everlasting kingdom. But when people choose not to repent, God must judge their sin with their consequences being eternal damnation. As we continue our study in Revelation, we see God's grace, his mercy, and the gospel truth presented again and again before the great and terrible day of God's wrath is poured out on those who do not believe. I'm Debbie Blank, looking forward to examining Revelation 5 today to understand why Jesus is worthy and what he's able to do that no one else can. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. Last week, as we studied Revelation chapter 4, we saw John in the midst of a very vivid description of the wonders of God's heavenly throne room. And that is where we find him today in chapter 5. But now, an event of cosmic consequence is about to unfold. All of heaven appears to be an intense longing for the event that will usher in the final defeat of sin and its evil ruler. But then, there is a delay. It appears that something has to happen first before anything else can begin. And this is where we find John in the first seven verses of Revelation 5. Jackie, as you just said, the scene here is John in heaven, seeing things that no one has ever seen before and being given information that God wants him to pass on to us. So we see God on the throne in chapter four and the throng of creatures worshiping him. As we come to chapter five, Jesus is going to enter the picture. So remember, this book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. I always saw it as the revelation of the Antichrist and the revelation of the tribulation period, but really is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, remember that we saw 85% of the verses in chapter one describing Jesus. In chapters two and three, when Jesus was writing to the churches, he was again described with his many loving qualities. In chapter 4, we saw the introduction to chapter 5, which is God seated on the throne, and now we see Jesus. This is such a powerful chapter that we're going to spend two weeks talking about it so we can understand the full intent of God's heart in giving this to us before the wrath begins in Revelation chapter 6. So in the beginning of Revelation chapter 5, John is still watching in heaven, and he sees in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, 
sealed up with seven seals. So this is a new thing that we're seeing in heaven in this part of Revelation. We are. First of all, it says, I saw on the right hand of him who is sat on the throne. And we know that's God on the throne because nobody else is worthy. No one else has the picture that was described to us in chapter four. So in the right hand of him, what difference does it make to be right handed or the right hand of God? Well, you recall in the Bible in Matthew twenty six sixty four, it says the son of man is sitting at the right hand of God. Back in Genesis 15, 6, it talks about the right hand being majestic in power. We can look at Revelation 13, 6 and be reminded that the Antichrist is going to cause the mark of the beast to be inserted on the right hand or on the forehead. So the right hand is a symbol of prominence. I'm reminded of Isaiah 41, 10 that says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So this is significant that God is holding this in the right hand. I remember when I grew up, it was almost an anathema to be left-handed because right hand shows power and prominence. And that's where God is holding this book or a scroll, which is written inside and on the back. Well, back then, you just wrote things on the inside of a document, of a scroll of parchment. You rolled it up and you sealed it on the outside. You didn't write on the inside or the outside. That was the custom, but this one is. This is God's directive that he's making available to show his plans for the end times. His plans from this moment forward, where he's going to bring about the wrath of God on this earth. And the fact that it's sealed means that no one else has been able to get into it. Whoever writes the scroll and then seals it with a wax seal, no one can open it. If they do, the seal is broken. So we know that it hasn't been opened. It hasn't been looked at by anyone. And there are also seven seals. What's the significance? Because normally we would think of something being sealed one time. Why seven? Well, first of all, the person who seals a scroll is usually the king or the leader. And as you say, only he can open it. And yet we're going to see that someone else is going to be able to open it. What does that tell us? That tells us that someone else is part of the same person who sealed it. They seal it with a signet ring. And it's significant because that means only he knows what's in it to the point that it can't be opened until the right timing. So what's the significance of the seven seals? Well, seven's a very important number in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned numerous times, and it always gives the understanding of completion. The item is done, it's over, it's complete, it's perfect. So when we see seven mentioned over and over again, it means God's perfect will is being performed on this earth according to his plans and according to what he has preordained. I've also heard someone say that if something has multiple seals, that could mean that it's a will, like a last will and testament. And so each part would be opened separately. One part would be revealed and opened, but not until the next one was ready would the next section be opened. So it's kind of the way that this works in the book of Revelation is we will see things opened one at a time. And it really is God's last will and testament on this earth. If we look at Ezekiel 2.10, that's a passage that's similar in idea to this scroll. It says, then I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me and lo, a scroll was in it. 
When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back. And written on it were lamentations, mournings, and woe. We will see those lamentations and woes when we continue in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 6. Zechariah 5, 1 through 5, says pretty much the same thing. There is a scroll, and on the scroll, according to verse 3, it says, This is a curse that is going forth over the face of the whole earth. And surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side. And everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. So we have throughout scripture this idea of a scroll being written. And clearly God's the only one who can write this scroll because God's the only one who knows the future. Each time when the scroll is presented, there's lamentations, woes, there's destruction on people who turn away from God. So in this scroll are future events written out. God is the only one who could write out something that's going to happen in the future, isn't he? This is very important to understand that only God knows the future. And we're going to see that in the next few verses, too. In Genesis 1-1, we're told, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he was in the beginning. And that God there is Elohim, which has the I am ending, meaning plural. And yet created is singular. So God is multiple, the Trinity who created the heavens and the earth. Verse two of Genesis one tells us that the spirit was moving over the waters. So the spirit was there. We're told in John one, one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were created by him and apart from him, nothing was created that has been created. That's Jesus. So we see the Trinity at creation. Now, I loved what my pastor said the other day. He said, for those of you who believe in the Big Bang Theory, that's up to you. But God lit the fuse. Right. <laughs> so God is the only one who was there from the beginning. He also has been with us throughout the times now and will be with us forever. Remember, we read in Revelation 1.8 about God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So God always existed. Now, it wasn't just him. Jesus did, too. We know from Revelation 22.13, Jesus says the same thing. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And Hebrews 13, 18 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is what I like, too, is in Scripture, several times after the disciples recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and specifically, I'm going to read Matthew 16, 19, Jesus told them future prophecies. The passage reads, from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Jesus is prophesying here. We see that 25% of the Bible is prophetic. So far, half of that has been fulfilled exactly as God said it would. There is no other creature, no other God on the face of the earth, no religion that can speak the future except God. And there's a scripture verse that says that God knows the end from the beginning. So he knew everything in Revelation from the beginning, even before Genesis. So the bookends that we have in scripture, there's a lot of parallels and a lot of things that work out that God knew from Genesis that will be in Revelation. 
Why would we follow any other God? Why would we turn to a religion or make ourselves the God of our lives or ignore God when he knows everything, when he's the only one who loves us and has a plan for each one of us and lays it out in his word? Unfortunately, we do. But we have to remember that only God knows the future and he has given us the future in his word, but he's also given it here in Revelation 5 written on the scroll. It goes on in Revelation 5 too. the passage reads, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals in heaven. Everybody's worthy in heaven. Certainly God is. And the 24 elders and the four creatures and the angels, they wouldn't be there if they weren't worthy under God's intent. But when it comes to opening that scroll, opening those seals, remember, God sealed those seals. So only God can open those seals. And none of those people I just mentioned are God. When it says um, in verse three, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. That's just amazing. I mean, that takes care of everyone. There's no one, at least at this point, in heaven, the angels shouting out who is worthy. And so far, no one is stepping forward because all of mankind has been disqualified. Everyone on the earth or under the earth has been disqualified because of the fall of man in chapter three of Genesis. So at one point in time, mankind had dominion over the earth. In chapter one of Genesis, God gave man dominion over the earth and man was to subdue the animals and the earth. When the fall came, they became disqualified because of sin. So now there's no one on earth, no one in heaven, no one is stepping forth at this point in time. And how does John react to that? Before I answer that question, let me just add to that, that there's several places in scripture, including the same chapter in verse 13, that focus on the fact that there's no one in the heaven or on the earth or under the earth to make it clear that that's where all creation is. And therefore, God is the God of all creation and only he can determine who is worthy. And as you say, no one is. And by the way, what does it mean to be worthy? Generally, on the earth, we consider someone who's worthy as being deserving. So that also deals with God as who is deserving in heaven. Really what worthy means is showing greatness or ability that merits recognition. That's a definition from the dictionary, but I think it matches up here. Who is worthy? In the whole of the book of Revelation, worthy is mentioned six times. Once happens to be in, to the church of Sardis. Those who didn't spoil their garments were worthy. In chapter four, it's mention of God once that he's worthy. In chapter five here, we see four times the word worthy as it's going to relate to the only one who is worthy to open the scrolls. Now, to get back to your question, how did John react? In verse four, it reads, and I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. I thought we weren't going to cry in heaven. This is actually the only place that we see someone weeping in heaven. Praise the Lord that we won't be doing that. But John is so touched. His heart is so broken. He's in heaven. He's seeing God Almighty. He's surrounded by the angels and everyone. But his heart is broken because no one is worthy. Imagine John weeping in heaven. Do we weep? 
when we think about the condition of the world, do we mourn over our sin and the sins that are destroying our world right now? In James chapter 4, God tells us, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom because of our sin. We should have that attitude of mourning over what's happening in our lives and to our world every time we turn away from God and our world is doing that. But do we? John is weeping because no one is worthy. No one's worthy to open the scroll. No one's worthy to do God's plan, or at least that's what he thinks. We need to ask ourselves the same question. And the next thing that happens is that the elders come up. One of the elders comes up to John and says, stop weeping. And the reason is, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So there is one who's worthy. Only Jesus is worthy to reveal the future. John is told not to weep anymore because there is one. And it's one that John knows. John is a witness to Jesus Christ. John knows who he is. John has to be elated as he sees the lamb come forward and being able to open the scroll. Jesus is described with such precision here. He's described as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Well, where do we get that? Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 9 and 10. It says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Here we see Jacob prophesying about his 12 sons, specifically his son Judah. And he's saying that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. The one who holds the scepter will come from the tribe of Judah. And he also is described here as a lion. So what we're seeing really is that Jesus here is described as the fulfillment of the hope of Israel, as he's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then it goes on to say he's the root of David. Oftentimes in scripture, he's also called the root of Jesse, who is David's father. And that means that Jesus is not only coming out of the lineage of David when he came to this earth, but he's the root. He's the foundation of the lineage of the kingship. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 10, we're told, Then a shout and a sprig from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be righteous. That's talking about Jesus, the root of David. Again, the fulfillment of the messianic hope to Israel. So we have two descriptions that are definitely Jesus. We know that from Scripture, from previous Scripture. Those titles apply to Jesus Christ. So we know that this lion that's being described that's to come forth is Jesus. And yet we see that this is not a lion that we're expecting to see, but we see a lamb instead. So why is that? He's well, described as a lion, and but he comes as a lamb. Because he has overcome 
we know that Jesus overcame when he died on the cross for our sins, when he gave up his life, when he became a servant, he came to serve, not to be served so that he might give his life a ransom for many, according to Mark ten forty five. And then in John nineteen thirty, we see, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He is the one who overcame sin for us. So he's called the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1, 29. He's the Lamb who stands before the throne. Why a Lamb? Well, in the Old Testament, a Lamb was used as the sacrifice for the sins of people on the Day of Atonement, a perfect unblemished lamb was sacrificed. And here we have Jesus, the lamb of God, who was sacrificed for our sins as not only an example of what happened in the Old Testament, but in Hebrews, it explains that Jesus' blood as a lamb was better than that of their sacrifices. In Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, and then later in 22, it says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves or lambs, you could add that in there, not through them, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Wow. And then it goes on to say in verse 22, all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Let's not forget that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is called our Passover lamb. What does that mean? Well, we have to go back to the story of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. The Jews are told to take an unblemished male and sacrifice him on the 14th day, putting the blood from that animal on the doorposts of their house so that they would be saved from death. In our case with Jesus as our Passover lamb, his shed blood on the cross saves us from our spiritual death if we will believe in him. So we see Jesus as the lamb being the one who shed his blood. So there are two aspects of the Messiah, the one who still bears the signs of his sacrifice, how he redeemed the world, anyone who would come and believe in him, and the lion who is about to judge and has every right to judge because he was the lamb who redeemed. Yes, and he was the lamb as if slain, it says in verse 6. And of course, from Acts 2.23, we see that Peter was saying that this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan of foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Jesus was slain. He was slain for the sins of mankind. He gave up his life for our sins, but mankind slayed him. So here we have his description up in heaven, but it doesn't end there. He's also described as having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. There we have that number seven. Horns indicate power, and the eyes means God is all seen. Zechariah 4.10 says, These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. He's El Roy, according to Genesis 16, the God who sees. And then the seven spirits of God, well, we could be relating again back to Isaiah 11.2 that we talked about in chapter 1 when we talked about the Spirit of God. 
Or we could look in the New Testament to John fourteen seven that says, this is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So that could be the spirit that we're seeing here. And finally, it ends by saying, and he came and took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne in verse seven. So only because Jesus is worthy, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the lion of Judah, he's the only one that's worthy. And why is he worthy? Because he's God. No one else is God, just the Trinity, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And because he is worthy, because he is perfect, he is the only one who can open the scrolls. Quite a picture of Jesus Christ. Debbie, in verse 7, you mention how he, meaning Jesus, came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So what does that mean? Why does he have the authority to go and take the scroll out of him who sits on the throne? Well, think about it. Could you or I approach God in heaven and take something out of his right hand? Of course not. We're not worthy. We're not in heaven. But we don't have the power. We don't have the authority to do something like that. So the only one who would have authority to accept something from his father would be Jesus. I would have the authority to walk up to my dad and say, Father, can I have this? You wouldn't because he's not your dad. But Jesus, being one with the father, has that authority. And the Bible tells us he does. In Matthew 28, verse 18 Right before Jesus ascended to heaven, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. That's when he gives the great commission and says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you forever, even to the end of the age. So that gave the apostles the authority to go out and share the gospel, knowing that they were just being obedient, but it was Jesus who was working in people's hearts. It was Jesus who would go before them. It was Jesus that was giving them the authority to do this and had the authority to do that. So by him overcoming death, by him overcoming sin, he has the authority. You see, God could have chosen to wipe out sin just like that, just because he's God. He spoke the world into existence. He's going to speak destruction into existence. So he could speak salvation into existence too. But instead, he needed to have a perfect sacrifice who would pay the price for the penalty of sin and then have us realize what he himself had done for us so that we would see that he is worthy as Jesus saving us as God in heaven. Remember in Revelation, it's God and Jesus who are the ones who are worthy. They are the ones to be praised and That's what we're going to discuss next week. We have so much more to describe about him that we'll talk about it in two weeks because next week is July 4th and we want to be able to talk to you about how important that holiday is to us. Then we come back in two weeks and we continue talking about the only one who is worthy and that's Jesus. Now let me just encourage you as we close today, God is giving us another chance to see Jesus as our redeemer. 
Will we receive him? Will we accept him? Because if we do, we get to be priests in his kingdom. For those who don't, they will enter the great tribulation that we will see starting in chapter 6. God's mercy is being poured out in your heart right now. Will you open your life, your heart, your spirit to accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Now is the time to do it. God wants you to. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.